So in, in the UK, government basically has to respect human rights law on human rights protections. Even if your case is um, found to not have good grounding, legally it can't evict you, right? It can't knowingly make someone destitute. It can't say, we know that you are someone who does not have papers to work in this country and we've been providing you with a place to live up until now, but we're not going to do that anymore and we can't deport you because we're not, it's not safe to deport you, so we're just going to leave you on the street. So there's quite, you know, it's, it's a, a law to prevent that from happening, right? So which is in some ways good, maybe not enough, but it's good, it prevents that from happening. However, the British government started outsourcing uh, responsibility for housing to private companies. So it took it out of the hands of local authorities and gave it to Circo. And Circo started forcibly evicting people by just changing the locks when they were out of the house. And this was in, in Scotland, they got taken to, to court and the judge ruled that yeah, actually, the government can't do that, but Serco can. friend and welcome to Mandatory Redistribution Party. I'm Jack Evans and in this episode I talk to anthropologist, journalist and activist Siobhan McGurk about the new book she's co-edited with Adrian Pine and tons of other writers called Asylum for Sale, Profit and Protest in the Migration Industry. Thank you for listening to Mando's. Thanks especially to those of you who share episodes on social media and give us nice reviews on iTunes or subscribe to our Patreon. Uh, we really do appreciate it. The focus of this conversation with Siobhan is mainly on the role of private companies in asylum systems, especially in the UK. But we talk about a lot, uh, like Siobhan's super smart and knowledgeable and very humble. But we start off by getting into what asylum is and its place in British public consciousness. Check it out. And there's this idea of people making false claims. And they use this language of the bogus asylum seeker, which is uh, really uh, kind of a ridiculous concept because the, the whole idea of, of asylum is that it's a, a right shared by everyone on the planet. It's a universal right that should you be suffering from persecution or, in fact, the language of the UN uh, documents around asylum, uh, the international law foundation of asylum is if you have a well-founded fear of persecution, now that could be because of your political opinion, because of your religion, because of your nationality, your ethnicity, uh, your belonging to a category like um, gay people, then you have a, a human right, a basic human right, fundamental right to leave the place that you are and go elsewhere to seek safety. Maybe the most famous asylum seeker of recent years has been uh, Edward Snowden. Um, who, who you know, left the US and, and went to Russia. And that was a kind of really unusual experience because we're more used to thinking about asylum seekers as, let's say, going the other way, 
there is a lot of work being done that discusses uh, legal obligation, moral obligation, talks about people in terms of deservingness, you know, are they really a deserving person? Are they really being persecuted? And those are all really Im- important uh, conversations and that we, we think about, um, yeah, the, the moral obligation that, that, uh, that we have in the West uh, to accept asylum seekers and refugees. But what we wanted to do with this book is say, well, you know, what we're not talking about is the huge amounts of profit making that are going on mm. around this process of people fleeing danger and trying to find safety elsewhere. And in the efforts to facilitate that happening, but also in the efforts to prevent that from happening, there are actors who are making a hell of a lot of money. Like people making money from this stuff is one of the things that just like explodes the idea of history as progress. Uh, if you dug up Churchill, like the most hardcore racist jacket potato that ever lived, and showed him modern restrictions on migrations, like just the laws, and then the money that's being made from those processes, it'd blow his hammy head. Like, I'm not saying he wouldn't get a buzz off it, but you'd be surprised. Like, Churchill's idea of a border would be quite different. I think there's, if we look back in uh, you know, history of, of borders, empire, concepts like yeah. migration and, and um, asylum, definitely we mm. can see loads of paradoxes or hypocrisies. Mm. The imperial forces of, of Europe were very, very comfortable mm. with the idea that borders did not apply to them. Now, the idea of... <laughs> Is it? Are we allowed to settle in to move to India and settle in India? I mean, that yeah, wasn't you know, that wasn't the question. I was just like, no, we're going to do that. Like we're the we're the powerful. We have that right, and we're going to yeah. not only go there, but we're going to kind of take over, impose our power, mm. extract resources, um, subjugate uh, individuals, and if you go and extract people's resources, power being generated in a place and put it elsewhere, so take it out of mm, um, mm. Asia and put it into the West, out of Africa and in, into, into Europe, then how is it surprising in any way that people will follow? And at different times, we have needed people to follow and wanted people. I say we as, as you know, the British, the British state. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so you think about the, the Windrush scandal of the last few mm. years, um, need to think about that in the context of colonial exploitation and then desperate need for workers and so kind of we'd like everyone to come over here please and and work for us we won't we won't treat you as equal citizens um we won't give you kind of the formal citizenship we'll give you these papers um that we can probably just like throw away in in 50 years time and then just say well you're from jamaica so have you got any right to be here anyway Joe Wilding's chapter in the book, The the Marketization of Asylum Justice in the UK, is just such a shocking uh, exploration Mm. of how the market can be so cruel to people. Like, I expected these law firms to be squeezing profit out of the system, but it's even more depressing that they actually seem to be trying to help people, but the market system means they can't do it properly because they haven't got enough money and time. Mm. And then the victim of this isn't, you know, the, the lawyer then, I'm obviously they're having a bad time, but the victim of this stuff is the asylum seekers, right? Mm. So even where there's laws to protect asylum seekers, you need a lawyer to make the defense, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's a complete race to the bottom. Um, so they say, uh, you know, we'll, we'll give you X amount of money to work on a case. Mm. And we've figured that out because we think that it should take you three hours to work on that case. 
And actual <laughs> lawyers are saying, well, no, if, if we want to do a good job, yeah. then that will take 10 hours. You know, it's, it's mm. like saying, um, no, you've got, <laughs> you've not got a month to uh, build a house. You've got one day. Like that house is obviously going to be a bit shit and it's not the yeah, builder's fault, yeah. right? It's because uh, <laughs> they've been working under these like huge constraints. And I think um, mm. Joan in her chapter does a really good job of like highlighting that you can understand why so many asylum seekers with very good reason feel mm. so frustrated with the legal aid that they have. And they feel, you know, that my, my lawyer mm. isn't, isn't very responsive, isn't doing enough for me. And in some cases there are, you know, there are unscrupulous lawyers who kind of will take the money and run. Of but course, actually yeah. in, in most cases, people are being, are being put in a position where they have to work overtime, risk extreme burnout. Or if you find an extra hour to put on a case, it might mean that an hour comes away from a different case. The increasing role of the market and private companies in the asylum system fits right in with how it's just increasingly brutal and repressive. But the people doing this stuff say it's about like efficiency and pragmatism. Like you were saying earlier, we, we, we think that history is kind of this positive march to a better place. And actually, in the US, it used to be um, slightly better for asylum seekers where they could apply for a work permit much, much sooner. And so at least would be able to be self-sustaining whilst they're awaiting a decision on their case. But the government, the US government said, we think too many people are coming here, submitting a claim that they don't ever think will be successful only in order to be able to get a work permit. So their so-called solution to that was to say, well, we should just stop people from being being able to work much longer because we'll make life so hard for people mm. that it won't seem like an appealing option to get a work permit and, and then just kind of walk away from your case. And that, that kind of attitude is just all over the place now. It's completely pervasive. So what they call deterrent policies. So Priti Patel loves these. She's, yeah, she's yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> she's like, let's put... We're being evil to be good. Yeah, exactly. She's like that kind of comedy villain that, you know, it hurts me yeah. more than it hurts you. And you're like, no, I'm, I'm yeah. pretty sure you're in, you're getting some yeah, pleasure yeah, yeah. from this, right? We want to ensure that, quite frankly, our asylum system is not being abused by those, quite frankly, who are not genuine asylum seekers. Well, she like seriously considered like the idea of putting giant wave machines in the English Channel um, or these kind of measures that are, are purely designed by their own admission, they'll say, you know, we need to let people know that they're not going to get an easy ride here. As if anyone fleeing mortal danger is a meeting people on their way with a really robust understanding of the UK asylum system and B is going to be put off when the option behind them is death. And the thing is, it's the easiest solution is to make it safe to come, right? Mm -hmm. It's sitting right there. Yeah. Did, did you see the approval rating for that offshore detention centre in the Atlantic? Yeah, uh, really scary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, it was really scary. But, you know, we already have like Yarl's Wood and stuff, mm -hmm. but that, that logic of... We need to have these really violent borders because actually, even, I feel bad about this, but I have to do it for your safety because the more I discourage you from coming, I'm actually keeping you safe. Never mind what you're going from. Yeah. Like, which probably we caused. Maybe we should get into why politicians in the press are so interested in contrasting asylum seekers and economic migrants. The, the distinction between um, economic, like this idea of an economic migrant and asylum seekers really, uh, it's, it's really important to kind of push back against because... Mm. 
being forced into poverty mm-hmm. is often a consequence of persecution or of mm-hmm. war um, or of you know any any number of things it's a very kind of uh, sort of sort of irrelevant distinction because it, it means mm-hmm. that it creates this expectation that real asylum seekers are not also in economic need which mm. of, of course is is absolutely the case and also the this idea that people who are coming for a better chance of life a better like mm. i would like to be in in one the last lines of the book about a, a young afghan man who wants to be a yeah. singer one day and why why should why should he not have uh, dreams of stardom, the career that he mm. wants, of, of gainful employment, of having a life worth living, an income worth living, mm. at the same time as saying, I would also not like to live in a place where uh, I'm under constant threat because of uh, my political opinion and mm. the, the war that's raging. Borders sort of aren't borders depending on who you are. Like they, you're, they're experienced totally differently, aren't they? Right. Yeah. Uh, like you said, you know, like the experience of borders for the global working class is very different from the experience of the global super rich. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Elon Musk's probably never really, you know, he's never going to experience border violence, is he? If you invest half a million pounds mm-hmm. in a UK business. My figure might be wrong. I don't know if, it, if it's changed, mm-hmm. but if you if you invest, it's got the the idea is that you've got to invest in a British uh, a British industry. In the mm-hmm. US, they have the the same the same concept. Um, they sometimes call it a job creating visa. So you be, you become <laughs> yeah. a, a you're not an economic migrant, but you're a yeah, job yeah, creating yeah. migrant. So you yeah, you say yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna build a hotel. That hotel is gonna provide uh, at least ten jobs or fifty jobs or however many jobs it is. And it's certainly nuts because you're probably going to open that hotel and then hire m- cheap migrant labour to do the hospital, you know, the hospitality work, <laughs> and then extract profit from them. But because you, you know, you're not extracting profit, or you're you're a job creator, right? Exactly. No, no one's asking like, what's what's the quality of that job? Like, is are you are you yeah. going to be paying sick pay and holiday pay? I don't. I mean, that's not. It's this kind of nebulous idea of a, a, you know, people with money create jobs, so we should give them all the helping hands. And it's the double layer of expo- exploitation, is it? We're exploiting people in the, the you know the countries where they were born and, and decimating their economies either uh, just through economic extraction or with bombs sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then they come here and we exploit them here because we dehumanise them. We don't give them the right, same rights as other workers, but the economy depends on exploiting that cheap labour. So it's just lose-lose wherever you are. Yeah, abso- right? yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's one chapter uh, one chapter in the book features mm. uh, an organisation called Detain Voices, which is a UK-based organisation that really focuses on giving space to people who are held in detention. One of their uh, statements on their website is from the hunger strikers at Yarlswood Detention Centre from a few years ago. Mm. They focused on exploitation within the detention center as one of the reasons why they were on hunger strike. So a a judge ruled that it was completely lawful for private detention companies to pay a nominal hourly rate of about one pound an hour to people for cleaning toilets and doing menial tasks around the detention center. And the detention center argued, oh, it's to alleviate boredom. We shouldn't pay them because it's not real. It's, no, it's not a real job. But of course, they're saving the minimum wage that they would be obliged to uh, pay uh, someone who was not 
also held in detention. And so they're companies that are receiving money for the government in order to hold people in detention, many of whom have no good reason to be held there because they're released uh, back uh, into the community soon afterwards because it's concluded that we can't deport you and actually you're not a flight risk. So sorry for just holding you for six months for no no good reason. And then at the same time, cutting, cutting their own costs and ex- increasing their profit margin by not having to pay staff to do certain jobs because they can just exploit the the, the people inside to, uh, to do these tasks. So yes, I mean, one, one pound per hour. Is, I mean, it's, it's absolutely wild, but it's completely normalised. Who's, who's running y'all's? Is it Circo? Uh, is it Circo, G4S? yeah. Circo, yeah. yeah. Circo. It's just... It's just wild. The CEO of Circo, Sir Nicholas Soames, and his brother yeah. was the, until this, this past election, was a Conservative MP. And uh, you mentioned his grandfather earlier on. His grandfather was Winston Churchill, right? So yeah. these are people with, um, I think it's a very relevant conversation when we look at who's getting um, track and trace and, and, and coronavirus contracts, right? Mm. Circo is also getting, getting a bunch of them as well. But these are people who are very cosy with the um, Conservative Party in particular, but the UK government more, more broadly. And they're companies that are seeing an opportunity to uh, make huge amounts of money through the process of, of demonising and restricting rights to people seeking mm. asylum. And that could be in detention, but, you know, cover all your bases, you can also get involved in asylum seeker housing. So Circo detains people, but it also has the contracts for providing people housing, asylum seekers housing outside of detention. You have private security companies who are paid to, quote unquote, escort people onto deportation flights. You have airline companies that um, accept government money to deport people, to take people forcibly back to different countries. Virgin Airlines, British Airways. That's the kind of really industrial level part of it because these are huge companies. These are companies that you can buy stocks in. <laughs> yeah, your pension fund's probably invested in it. And that's all the like above board legal vanilla profit making, which exists right alongside the illegal profit making. It's mm. a consequence of the legal stuff, which is your people smugglers, etc. People who are helping obtain visas, falsify bank statements to help you apply to, to get a visa, that kind of thing. Um, people accepting money called smugglers sometimes uh, in, in the US-Mexico uh, uh, border. They're often called coyotes. So people who are uh, paid to help people cross, uh, cross borders. There is a lot of uh, organised crime involved in that, but there's also kind of smaller, let's say smaller scale um, operations. There's uh, exploitation that happens en route, huge sexual exploitation, um, labour exploitation. So people who are travelling in order to seek asylum somewhere overland because they haven't got the financial capital to get a plane ticket and a visa. So the most wealthy people can you know, travel from city to city on an aeroplane, which is much safer than having to cross over land. Um, but if you're kind of a, a working class person, then overland is your choice. And then you are vulnerable to um, massive uh, labour exploitation, sexual exploitation, in, enslavement, imprisonment. Um, and so there's mechanisms of, of profit making that, let's say, kind of going on uh, all, all over. Um, and the the... That kind of criminal profit making, the architects of the legal profit making, 
they love to focus on them as like the 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 baddies of the situation right. when of course that criminal profit making is only possible because of the the border violence that's legal right right absolutely and again it gets us back to that kind of that we could call it a paradox or a hypocrisy or just a ludicrous claim Uh but the idea that um you know we we must punish asylum seekers because um a criminal gang helped them get here which i mean could you could you imagine saying like you're the victim of a crime and we want those criminals to stop committing that crime so we're gonna imprison you (laughs) as the victim of that crime right is that is that in any way going to prevent these unscrupulous they're being characterized or constructed as these you know unscrupulous organized criminals are they going to stop putting people on boats because that they know those people are going to end up in detention centers i don't think so it's almost as if their priority isn't an effective policy right (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) it's almost it's almost as as if You're I reckon not quite being, else. you know, maybe being a bit disingenuous, right? Um, I mean, the wildest, you know, you, you, you said you've uh, done your research in the US and I couldn't find a statistic for the UK, but I did find a statistic for the US in terms of how much money's involved here, right? So the US budget for border and immigration control in the last 25 years has gone up 133,567%. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's yeah, which is mind-boggling. It's completely insane. Yeah, and the reason the reason that we can't find those statistics in in, in the UK context is because they are it's kind of so hidden. Um, partly, yeah. partly because um, you can ask like, what do we define? Like, the US is quite proud of of its like rampant xenophobia in some ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas in the UK, it's, it's a quite, national pastime. <laughs> But it's, it's quite hard to like parcel out. I mean, I get asked this a lot in mm. reference to the book, like, like how you know how much money are we talking about here? And mm. in many ways, it's impossible to determine because right. how do you how do you quantify all these different activities? Right. So you, you start adding up border securitization, and then you start mm. adding up detention centres, and then asylum seeker housing, and then the stipends that asylum seekers uh, receive, and then your legal aid bill, and then how much uh, how much if you wanted to add in NHS care or social worker care like what proportion of those budgets could you say with any kind of confidence were being used by asylum seekers uh, people with anti-immigrant views often use that lack of information to make claims that don't really seem believable like this idea that um, asylum seekers are putting a huge strain on the nhs you know which there's no there's no proof for it at all so it's in some ways people enjoy the fact that there's it's very difficult to quantify, but in the UK case, yeah, it's, very, it's very difficult to quantify those things. And then you have this additional aspect of the UK has its own borders, but then it has European uh, border securitization investments historically you know, over the, mm. the last, since however long we've been involved in the, the, the EU, but particularly we can, we can say, for example, Frontex um, mm. and the EU border security budget we can look at how how that's fortress europe yeah exactly how the creation of fortress um europe has has uh has increased but it's it's very difficult to kind of quantify the the actual amounts and then you get these kind of other other areas where they're attached to the what we call the asylum industry but they're Mm -hmm. maybe not immediately relevant how Mm -hmm. and so i'll give you an example of how foreign aid 
is mm. uh, tied to the asylum industry. So you have the Australian government wants to build detention centres in, in Papua New Guinea so that it can do this policy of saying, if you come here to seek asylum, we will we'll not give you uh, the right to even stay on this land. We're going to put you elsewhere. In order to do that, you have to make a deal with Papua New Guinea, right? Yeah, so what yeah, does yeah. that deal look like? And what does Papua New Guinea ask for in, in return? And so mm. what we've seen is this kind of negotiation of, well, if, we, if you do this for us, then that, that will reflect well on our relationship. So maybe that will help us sort out a trade deal. Uh, maybe mm. that will help us bump up our foreign aid budget or development aid budget mm. that, that's that's due to be recalculated to you next year. And we've seen this in, in the US um, with uh, the request that um, that Mexico um, house asylum seekers uh, for processing, bef- not not in the US. Mm. So asylum seekers to the US are housed in Mexico for processing, and that was a very shocking story. But you know, there's a trade deal to be negotiated, so. What's Mexico going to say? They're not going to say no. Another another aspect of it is asylum seekers being created, let's say, mm-hmm. um, or conditions in which people cannot live safe, fulfilling lives are created mm-hmm. through um, capitalist uh, expansion and war. Um, whether that's war for oil, or you know, if we're if we're if if people ask, how is the UK going to get enough money to uh, to to receive and, and care for these asylum seekers we can just say well you know how what was the value of the the contract of selling arms to yemen or you know <laughs> yeah. to, uh, yeah. to saudi arabia sorry the contract of selling arms to saudi arabia uh, to then use against yemen so wow you know it's, it's so we can we can connect those those dots um yeah like one tomahawk missile costs a million pound like how many of them were dropped on Libya Mm. and obviously you don't need a bomb to ruin someone's home you can just destroy the planet's climate right then demand they stay in the place that you've made unlivable we're seeing the 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 kind of worst effects of uh, climate change in, in terms of displacement of people happening in the global south but we know that that climate, that uh, carbon emissions are really coming much more heavily from the from the global yeah. north. So who's paying for um, you know our, our our love of oil in in the global mm. north? It's, it's people who are uh, suffering from flooding and drought uh, and extreme hurricanes and weather conditions. Uh, but we're we're saying there's no space for you, right? That that's the price. That's you're paying the price for our activity, and we've got no no scope to support you. Wow, that's that's a really good way of thinking about it. I mean, even on—I mean, you're at like galaxy brain level, but even <laughs> my, my like my little my little tiny brain is looking at like my, the language about money around around these issues. No one ever goes, "Oh, how much does Yarl's wood cost? How much would it cost to build, like, say, Patel's giant wave machines?" You know, like there's an infinite well of money for the, the you know border violence, but then when it's like, ooh. This asylum seekers costing this much to the right. NHS, or uh, uh, like, and then suddenly the money's got mm. it's gone. And it's much. It's, it's, I think a very very basic response to that is it is much 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 cheaper for someone yeah. to live in a house and mm. have a, a, a weekly stipend to be able to buy their own 
food and yeah. look after themselves you know buy the the and then beauty products they want buy whatever mm-hmm. like it's a small mm-hmm. amount of money that people get but it's so much cheaper for that to happen and for someone to have a local gp and mm-hmm. and all those kind of things than to hold someone in a prison and and have all you know in a prison you have to have a, a staff to do the cooking, you have to have a food budget, you have to have people coming in to provide healthcare, or you have to provide transportation for people to go to the, to the doctors. And it's just so much more expensive to hold people in these immigration prisons. But I think, you know, like you say, suddenly the, the cost argument disappears when uh, people are offered uh, a more punitive measure. So you, you mentioned earlier the, the YouGov poll about how do you feel about the idea of offshore detention? It was over 50% of conservative voters, I think it was 54% of conservative voters, said, yeah, sounds great. And you're like, well, that's going to be very expensive. So why are you suddenly not... What about that small state you wanted? Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. But there was that Labour Lord as well, some admiral, who was like, perhaps the solution to these asylum seekers, this was, we could perhaps concentrate them in some sort of camp and then everyone was like whoa 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 that was only like a month ago there's like yeah. at the start of october i was like mate are you you talking about concentration camps there buddy um oh now, now i've heard it out loud <laughs> i um, think he used to work in blair's home office or something yeah i mean i, I, I mean, remember they, they were the guys that built yars yars wood weren't they so i was gonna say i mean mentioned um pre-trump before but i i remember back in my youth uh mm. occupying phil woolass's Old wow. constituency office when he was yeah. an immigration minister in the, yeah, in the yeah. Labour government. So it's cert- well, certainly not a party political move. No. Um, Bill Clinton, uh, you're talking about the um, investments in in board what so-called border securitisation in the US. Bill mm-hmm. Clinton was a huge um, advocate and proponent of that, and actually a lot of the they were called fences, not walls, but, you know, Cheaper. bigger and better um, yeah. for Donald Trump. But these border fences basically uh, didn't really stop the numbers of people trying to cross the border into America, but it made the routes that were available much less safe. So it meant that more people died in the desert and therefore weren't counted as having crossed, right? So, yeah, you you invest in, in closing pathways that, that basically force... Uh, people um, to to uh, painful painful um, death. Jesus, so, and then of course fence corp make their money. Yeah, and that'll be labelled as a pragmatic and necessary. Like tell someone who's anti-migrant they're racist and they lose it. Like they just say, oh, it's just necessary. Mm. It's necessary we have these walls and detention centres, and it's necessary that private companies administer the walls and detention centres because the market knows best. Like, even if it wasn't racist, making profits by brutalising and dehumanising vulnerable people is still something to be ashamed of. Yeah, it is absolutely racism that allows people to value value those lives less. Do you know what I mean? So it's that, you know, that it's... You, you, and I th- I, that's one of the reasons we wanted to kind of talk about um, about profit making and, and kind of move the conversation a little bit away from this kind of idea about uh, moral obligation and legal obligation. Mm-hmm. Because then we get caught up in this idea of, like, there being kind of good guys and bad guys and good humanitarians and that kind of thing. Even those kind of, those humanitarian arguments often come back to this claim of pragmatism. Mm. Mm. And so um, this this comes up a lot in in the book is kind of humanitarian aid organisations can kind of extend or, or echo these same kind of arguments that the state makes. So you Mm. have NGOs that are, are kind of, 
saying, well, we only want to help deserving asylum seekers. We want to, we want to support uh, victims. Mm. If someone doesn't look like they've got a good case, then maybe, maybe they're not the kind of person that we want to support, right? Yeah. And, Bad PR. Right, exactly. Or uh, there's a chapter in the book um, that talks about this, uh, this kind of relationship between the Red Cross and uh, the Danish state and how people within the Red Cross um, are often kind of doing doing the work of the state in terms of restricting asylum seekers' access to mm. how many apples they're allowed to eat and that kind of thing, but also manage, managing asylum seekers in these, in these detention centres or de facto mm. detention centres, but seeing themselves as doing good work and kind of yeah. preventing, preventing the punitive state from hurting people. Like I've kind of put myself in the way, but not really recognising that they need to fulfill the state's requests, otherwise mm. their funding will stop. Ultimately, they as individuals are going to benefit because you know that that looks good on on your resume, on your CV. Um, you know, I've, how many years' experience have I got at, at Red Cross before I can move on to the UNHCR, move elsewhere? So you get this kind of this uh, humanitarian professional yeah. who, and I think this is a, this is an argument that we that we make throughout the book that um, is maybe. Maybe the most uh, challenging for, for people because a lot of uh, people I think who would want to read the book maybe are involved in organisations that are providing aid, and we're not at all saying that that is a you know a, a bad thing at at all. But we are encouraging kind of a critical reflection on the ways in which aid organisations and the staff and volunteers of aid organisations might benefit from uh, social capital, if not financial capital. Um, through through their work, it's a bit of a yeah a bit of a challenging challenging argument I think. And cer- we're certainly not um, putting them on a par with uh, the arms manufacturers that are lobbying the EU to buy <laughs> to buy biometric passport systems from them. That's, that's a very different class. Yeah, like we've got to reflect on this kind of stuff critically because you have to be critically yourself to improve. And I don't think you should worry like it's coming across bad because it, it, I mean it's so clear you. you, cri- you you're reflective about yourself as well. You're critical of like literally yourself in here. Like there's that bit, um, I might just read it out actually. I might just read it out. Um, so Siobhan closes um, her section, which we'll get into in a sec with this, with dropping this nuke. Was, it is reassuring to think that I am a different sort of anthropologist, a different sort of NGO volunteer, a different sort of writer, or that my words jam the gears of rhetorical juggernauts, promoting and justifying colonial, racist, xenophobic, elitist, homonormative, neoliberal norms. But I also recognize I've been complicit in every act. And it's like, fuck. <laughs> Uh, but yeah. like, because you say it's it's critical self reflection. You're not just railing at these things blindly. It's you're, it's it's constructive, and you're pointing out major major problems. You know, like you say, doing messed up, pro- deeply problematic stuff because it's going to look okay on your CV. Yeah, but it's, it's self reflective as well. Like, and you, oh, you know, absolutely, you're, you're and, and it's it's important that we're real about that. I mean, I you know mm. when I when I the book is on my CV. You know that. Mm. I mention it in a job application. That's this is my kind of I've, this is my area of like exp- expertise. But yeah. actually, I'm drawing on ideas that mm. people have have shared with me, and you know, conversations that people have you know, opened up to me and, and invite me into their lives. And those people haven't had the uh, financial capital, the social capital, the citizenship, uh, the the white privilege. That, that I've had in order to kind of pursue this this area for the study. I mean, this and this is very real. I mean, when I went to university um, 
it was it, it was the before the the fees were were introduced mm. but even even then you know going to university wow. was you know a bit of a privilege but now i mean anthropology i'm an anthropologist right? i've got my phd in anthropology and i studied anthropology at, uh, at undergrad when i went to university i didn't even know what anthropology was i found out <laughs> in an anthropology class which is wonderful but mm. yeah i come from a relatively privileged background i was encouraged to go to university and and kind of encouraged to study and that's great now, even if people wanted to, the cost of going into higher mm. education is so prohibitive that a grant of asylum or a kind of opportunity to um, kind of rebuild your life in a, in a ostensibly more kind of safe environment, how long does it take then to get enough financial capital to to go and have the opportunity to um, be supported in, in doing this kind of research so I definitely would say that I'm I'm so uh, I'm so grateful for the people who have opened up their uh, their worlds and their analysis and offered me mm. incredible insights and, and um, you know trusted me I suppose to uh, to write about them in these ways so yeah definitely this this book is for those those people I think we, we put yeah. that in the in the um in the dedication the acknowledgements yeah you can and you can tell it's like threaded through every one of the pieces um that, that that's where people are coming from is there anything you might suggest listeners could do uh that's that's worthwhile you know so uh critical self-reflection necessary but is there anything you would recommend presumably community helping uh, things that embedded in the communities themselves is it seems to be what you're suggesting. Yeah, right? absolutely. I think I think we're seeing certainly over the over the last few months we've seen mm-hmm. incredible community led and community based action, mutual aid networks setting up everywhere. And I think I would encourage that and say I hope in no way anyone is dissuaded or feels mm-hmm. powerless mm-hmm. by any any kind of critical analysis that um, I might have or that's in the book about volunteer-based organisations. Mm-hmm. I would say join those organisations. Don't try and make those organisations unless you <laughs> yeah. are unless you are kind of situated in them. I mean, yeah. um, founding organisations that are to help others is always a, a an area that I think should demand mm-hmm. critical reflection because the question is like, who asked you to help? <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, and and that's that's kind of the tyranny, the tyranny of uh, the tyranny of, of good intentions. Um, but good intentions can be channeled in wonderful wonderful directions. So I think you know, look at your local communities and and see what kind of organisations are providing direct aid. There's so many around around the UK. A lot of them are very locally based, and it might just be um, providing support to kind of fill that gap where the government has failed clothing goods that, that people need financial support that people need it is very much area by area so i encourage people to look like look locally yeah but at the same time to kind of keep keep eyes on what the government is doing and oppose it i mean i'm not i'm not convinced that you know write to your mp and start a petition are particularly um effective tools i would say that is they are tools in a toolkit that yeah also includes direct action. Um, there's a chapter in the book by uh, two members of the Stanford 15 who physically um, prevented a deportation flight from taking off. A huge, a huge personal risk, but um, they're a very important action. And so I think there's a whole spectrum of, of things that people can do. People should do what they're comfortable with, but, but definitely keep eyes on government policy, feel empowered to correct 
people in your in your family circles around the <laughs> virtual Christmas table that when they kind of make these claims about pragmatism um, being armed with a few statistics doesn't hurt um, or a few kind of gentle questions around uh, uh, around why people um, have those beliefs because I think people if they're pushed a little bit um, often kind of fold and their their prejudices can be um, yeah. exposed for what they are rather than kind of cloaked in pragmatism. If you're not going to de-radicalise your granddad, who is? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, th- Thanks so much for coming on, Siobhan, and best of luck with the book. It's really good, and I think Mando's listeners uh, will be interested to read it. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity uh, to talk about it. It's co-edited by my colleague Adrian Pine, and I have to thank all the contributors because, as I said, it's an edited volume. It's not my; it's not only my ideas, um, yeah. and the book is available at Waterstones, WH Smiths, all those local places, and even your local independent bookstore. And I encourage you to support... <laughs> Support your local independent bookstore. A lot of them are um, doing mail order stuff. Yeah, Look don't it buy up. it from Amazon. It yeah. is available on Amazon, but don't get it on Amazon. Jeff does not need the money, no, people. No, do not get it on Amazon. <laughs> Amazon provides technical support to um, immigration and customs enforcement in the US. Do not get it from Amazon. Get it from your local independent bookstore. <laughs> Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean. Thanks so much to our guest, Siobhan McGurk. Like, honestly, check out the book, Asylum for Sale. But obviously, defo, don't get it off Amazon because we'll we'll find out and get honking mad. As always, thank you very much for listening. Checking us a review on iTunes, subscribing to Patreon, or sharing our episodes on social media. We love it. Bye.